Uh, I enjoyed those moments, everything about that video and that song all together. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but we chose those particular people in the video because all of them had an experience with being judged. The single mom who had a baby when she was in a Christian school still gets texts today from that community and not in a positive way. She was judged by her family and the world. Uh, Eddie in our community with his tattoos and the way he looks uh, is on the, on the receiving end of that. Uh, the, the, the bald guy with the beard, the, uh, he's an Arab. He's a, my good friend. He was in my small group there from Dackley. Says that just, just he walks into any uh, place and just based on how he looks is on the receiving end of being judged. Uh, there's so many, uh, you know, others too uh, who have that story. And then, and then to hear the song about, you know, knowing God's love and the Father's heart. And so how do those two things go together? And that's actually where we're going today. That's why the song says what it says about God and his love. And that's, that's where we're going. So I'd love to pray as we begin, as we dive into this topic together. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we thank you for today. And we ask that you would help us to hear from you. Help us to be challenged from your words. And I pray, Lord, whatever it is that we need to step up to, that we would. So give us the courage and the wisdom in these moments. We ask and pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to take just a moment and receive our offering. And as the ushers are coming down, I just want to say, if you're visiting here today, uh, don't worry about this moment of giving. You can give if you'd like, but honestly, just keep your wallet in your pocket. This is a part of a time for Kensington people to give back to what God has blessed us with. That's what God's word says. And we're always careful to say thank you for doing that because it's always hard to give financially and it's difficult. But uh, thank you for trusting us and our leadership uh, and, and just being able to do that as well. So as the offering is passing, I want to tell you a quick story. About a couple of years ago, I went to Cuba on a missions trip. And um, th- just so you'll know, that's one of our global partners. And what we do down in Cuba is we actually, our whole goal is not to build something or paint a house or, or anything like that. We just go down going door to door, sharing the gospel or the message of Jesus Christ with everybody. And, and we only go to appointments that are made, people who say they want us there. So it's not cold knocking or anything like that. It sounds really intimidating, but honestly, everybody who goes on this trip, most everybody is not trained and has never done that before. But everybody just goes through a quick training, goes down, says it's awesome. I'm only saying that because we have a trip coming up in May. If you're interested at all, come find me because it's incredible. So anyway, the Cuba is stuck in the 50s. Uh, Not only are they stuck in the 50s because, you know, the buildings are so old. And not only that, but like all the cars, I'm sure you've heard. uh, There's 1950s cars everywhere. They have no choice, you know, for that because of the embargo and the regime and everything else. And so they were stuck in time. And so that's really cool to see all these 50s cars. It's really neat. But, you know, uh, also not only is it that way culturally, but believe it or not, the church feels a lot like the church in the 50s because, uh, you know, the, the, the regime was so oppressive that you weren't allowed to even talk about Jesus for decades. And now that the laws have kind of loosened up a little bit, this wave is going through the island of Cuba with about 12 million people, and they're actually hearing about Jesus for the first time, and they've established these house churches. And I'll be very honest with you, it feels a little young. It feels like, it feels like the growing pains that we went through in the 1950s. Um, let me say it a different way. If we can go back in time and actually try to correct some of the mistakes that the church has made decades ago, uh, it would be a really great thing to go back in time because we've made some mistakes along the way. 
And I kind of feel like that's the mentality down there. They're very conservative. Uh, they dress very modestly. And, uh, and it feels like the church is pretty young on its feet. So all that to say... I went down and I was actually making visits and this one particular visit, a pastor there at a local church asked me to go to a church member's house with their whole family. So this wasn't a person that didn't know God. This was a person who used to come to church that no longer comes to church. And they were on the receiving end of church discipline. The church had approached them about certain beliefs or choices or different things like that. The nature of the topic is not relevant for this story. But basically, they were approached, they went through church discipline, and then now they stopped going to church. So the pastor wanted me to go there and talk them into coming back to church. So I go there, they sent an associate pastor with me. He was really old, he was like 95 thousand years old and they sent a translator with me and I sit down in this home with this huge family I'm talking about why they don't come to church and then I asked a question and I said let me ask you a question I said do you feel judged or do you feel loved through this whole process and the girl and you know who was you know the main person she kind of looked over at her parents and then she looked over at the associate pastor and she was afraid to answer and I said don't look at him look at me I said, do you feel loved or do you feel judged in this process? And she put her head down and she said, I feel judged. I said, do you feel like the church cares about you or do they just care about, you know, what they said? And she says, no, I don't feel like the church cares about me. I said, I want you to hear something from me. I said, I am not your pastor. And this guy wasn't either. He was an associate in the church. But I said, I'm not your pastor, but I am a pastor. I said, and on behalf of the whole church as as one, I said, I apologize because this is not how this should have been done. I said, I apologize on behalf of the church. And their reaction was like, they didn't even know what to expect. And even as the translator was translating and he was looking at me like, are you sure this is what you want to say? And then this old guy leans forward like, what are you saying? And I said it. And, and I just remember, you know, afterwards we walked out of the house and I said some other things too, a lot of other things. And as we walked out of the house, the translator looked at me and said, man, that was right, but that was not common. That was not common for somebody to take that posture. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't care. Like, I don't care. I can care less. In fact, I found out that she didn't have a Bible. You know, the average Cuban makes $12 in a month's time. And a Bible is like $50 or $60. So imagine if you could take three or four months of your entire yearly salary just to buy a Bible. Would you do it? And, and it's a hard answer, isn't it? Maybe you would. But uh, I went back to the East-West uh, organization that we partner with, and I got together with a guy that works there, and I said, do we have any Bibles on, on ground? And he said, yeah, we have a warehouse, but there's only like 100 Bibles. It's very limited. I said, man, I have one of those. And so he went, sent a runner, came back, and I ended up going back to that house, knocking on the door, and handing this Bible, and I said, to, to this lady who was disenfranchised with the church. And she, you would have thought that I showed up with a lottery ticket or my name was Ed McMahon or something. She was screaming. She was like, what? She's like, and she kept on screaming, pardon me, pardon me, for me, for me. And she's crying, holding this Bible. She couldn't believe that I bought her a Bible. I didn't buy it for her, I just gave it to her. So she's like, unbelievable. And, and I walked away thinking to myself, man, I had a lot of conversations. A lot of people came to know the Lord, put their faith in, faith in the Lord. And, and it was a great trip. But I gotta tell you, out of all those conversations I had, I felt, it's a weird way to say it, but I felt most proud of that conversation because I felt as if I had the opportunity to get in my DeLorean and go back to the 1950s and make a difference and maybe even kind of steer clear of a mistake that the church has made so often in the past. 
And you know, the funny thing about judging is that the, the church or anybody from the church, any follower of Christ, they mean well, at least most of the time, not all the time, but I would say probably the majority of the time, Christians have the right motives. And here are the motives. The motives are these, that when God tells me to either obey or to surrender or to do whatever it is, a Christian or a follower of Christ, they experience love and peace and joy and blessings. And so their motivation is to you know, have their loved ones experience the same things, not make the same mistakes. And so a Christian, most of the time, not not all the time, is motivated out of, you know, good things. Saying like, hey, it's my goal for you to hear and understand what's true and what's right. But the problem is the church doesn't have a very good reputation for doing it well along the way. And what's interesting is, is that this word judge needs to be redefined because it is so overused and abused in our language today. It's become that. Let me give you an example. So uh, think about uh, like a Christian group at an anti-rally. And you could pick any topic you want to, any anti-something rally where a Christian is there and they hold up signs and they write the most horrific things that you've ever read that a Christian could say about someone, about what they believe or their choices, right? And, and we've all seen that, right? Just the worst example, I think, of, of taking a stand or making a difference. It's, it's just awful. So, and now the world sees that. Non-Christians would see that and say, don't judge me, right? Don't judge me. You're so judgmental. Stop judging me. And then take, take the complete opposite end of the spectrum and get two people who have a loving relationship for 20 years and they meet at Starbucks. Maybe they're both Christians, but maybe they're even family members or maybe even related, right? And they have the best relationship possible. And in the most loving context, one person says to the other, listen, I've noticed something that I want to challenge you gently with in a loving way. You know, maybe it's a problem with alcohol. Maybe it's an affair that you're having or an inappropriate relationship. And I care about you and I want to, bring this to your attention. And that person will say the same thing. They'll say, don't judge me. I just saw it on an episode of a sitcom I was watching. You know, don't judge me. And I thought to myself, he's not judging you. He loves you. Isn't it interesting how we have two complete different scenarios on the opposite ends of the spectrum. And yet the world will say the same thing within the church and without inside the church. We say, don't judge me. And this word has become something entirely negative. And yet it's in the Bible somewhere. And even though it's written in a positive way in some cases, we hear the word judge and we view it entirely negative because it needs to be redefined. And so here's a couple truths about the word judge. Here's the first one. Christians are never called to judge outsiders, but we are called to judge insiders. And by outsiders, I'm meaning those outside the church. Insiders are those inside the church. Believe it or not, we are called to do some things. Look what uh, 1 Corinthians 5.12 says. Paul says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. What Paul is saying is, he's saying, how would you ever expect the world to either believe or behave like you believe and behave if they don't choose to know or believe and trust in Christ? If they don't believe in God, why would you ever expect them to believe or behave like you do? Paul is saying, Christians are never supposed to judge outsiders. And you know what never means? Never means never in the Greek. Never, right? But we are somehow supposed to love and encourage people along the way inside the church. In fact, Galatians chapter 6 tells us that we have a responsibility. I don't have it on the screen, but I actually have it. Uh, I took a picture of... um, 
my Bible program, and it reads this way, Galatians 6.1. Dear brothers and sisters, which means church people, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Galatians tells us we who are more mature in the faith have a literal responsibility to help those younger in the faith who are straying in their belief or actions or their struggles to help them gently and humbly bring them back to the path. How in the world are you supposed to address other other people's struggles without them screaming, don't judge me? And yet somehow, Paul says we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to do it in a loving way. But one thing is clear, and let's just get this straight. We're not called to judge outsiders at all. So we judge, you know, the believing, not the heathen, right? Like just let's get that off the table right now. How many of you uh, know that, uh, or believe this? How many of you believe that Facebook can be filled with either political or religious rantings? Anybody? Uh, isn't, it, isn't it just terrible? Uh, but you know this, if you actually look closer, like you start reading all the political rantings by people, or especially the religious rantings, do you know that actually, I started reading those, and I, I discovered like, man, there was so much truth in them, like it, it significantly impacted my life in a really, really positive way. Said no one ever. <laughs> Said no one ever, right? And so listen, I got, I got news for you. If that's you, just stop it. Stop it, because you're, having, you're making me create series just like this one. So, so let's just get that off the table. But I just listen, let me say it another way. Um, I, it's not my responsibility if your kids go home and do their homework. But it is my responsibility to make sure that mine do. And I'm going to yell at them and tell them that it's their job to do their homework. And if they feel judged, guess what? I don't care because I'm the judge. <laughs> right? But it's not my job to take care of your kids. It's your job. But, I, but it is my responsibility of what happens inside the family. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 7. Verse number 1. Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now let's stop there. This is what everybody says. Hey, Jesus said, do not judge. And yet the weird part is, he's about to tell us that we have responsibility to do something. And so the context of this scripture of do not judge is like, well, wait a minute. Is Jesus telling us never to judge? Or is he telling us not to judge a certain way? Because all the other scriptures line up and it tells us to do some things. uh, But, you know, but what, what does this mean? Well, we're about to find out. So he says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And here is actually the question that Jesus asked, because that's the name of the series. The question he asked was this, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, let me give you a visual aid. If you see a speck of sawdust in someone's eye, and then you look around and you say, hey, I, you've, listen, I've got a problem. I've got a problem with you. I noticed, young lady, you have a speck of sawdust and it's called sin and it's in your eye and you need to get that out of your eye. In fact, all of you, every single one of you have sawdust in your own eyes and, I, and I'm the one that's supposed to tell you about it. And you know what? That, that sin means you're in church and you're going to double hell. And so you have to take it out. I'm serious, young man over there. You have a How ridiculous is this? Jesus is saying, hey, how could you point out a speck of sawdust in somebody's eye when you have a two by four hanging out of your own eye? It's poking out. This is how Jesus addresses the topic. Look at verse four. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? 
you hypocrite. First, now this is what's interesting. He doesn't say first take the plank out of your own eye and then be quiet. Then do nothing about it. He doesn't say that. He says first take the plank out of your own eye. So let's take care of that. Okay, let's do that. And then he says, and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So, okay, so we're, supposed to, we're still supposed to go through with it? And so here's what Jesus is saying. If I could paraphrase it, Jesus never said the words, why do you judge? But if you could paraphrase the heart behind these questions is that he's saying, why do you judge in this manner? So here's the truth. The truth, the second truth about judging is this. We should always look at the struggles of others through the lens of our own. That's what Jesus is saying. We should always look at the struggle of others only through the lens of our own struggles. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, Paul says it this way. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Right? And, and the implication here is that you are nothing. Not just sometimes, you're nothing always. We all have sin. This is what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that every single one of us are imperfect. And so if this person has a struggle in this area and we approach that person in this area, say, listen, he struggles in this area and he's terrible at it and he should never be terrible at it. It's so obvious. He's so bad at it, right? Well, we may have no problem in that area, but what the Bible is saying is, but there's another area in your life that he doesn't struggle with that you do and you're terrible. You're terrible at it, right? No matter how good you are compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God our Father, you are in the same boat as everybody else. And what he's saying is, is there's a speck of sawdust in someone's eye, but you realize you have a plank in your own eye. And so therefore, this posture of better than is what Jesus is addressing. Don't judge in this manner or you'll be judged in the same measure as the same measure that you'll, that you'll measure others. Rather, then you need to look at the struggles of others through the lens of your own. Because you're, you are nothing when you think you're something. Because you think you're something in this area, but you're nothing in this area. And so the bottom line is, is every one of us have issues. Um, let me, I've done this before. Let me do it again. Raise your hand if you think you have issues. Raise your hand. Okay. Now, if you did not raise your hand, you have serious issues. I'm serious. You do. Because every one of us are imperfect. It's the only thing we have in common in this room. And what Jesus is saying is, is he's saying, if you are to, to uh, take a speck out of somebody's eye, take the plank out of your own. But he tells us to take the speck. You know what's interesting about that illustration? Jesus was a carpenter. Do you, do you know that Jesus already knew what it's like to have sawdust in your eye? I know what it's like to have sawdust in my eye. It looks soft. It's not soft. There's sharp pieces of wood. And if you get sawdust in your eye, do you realize how gentle and loving the action must be to reach over and help somebody get a small, sharp piece of, of wood outside their eye? Do you realize how loving and gentle? You can't come up with a, you know, an illustration that would demonstrate more, uh, you know, just, just the delicate nature and the, and, and the intentionality and how careful and gentle and loving that must be. Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus used this illustration for a reason. And he's saying, you can't do this. First, you must do this and then do this. And I think it's interesting how God talks about this. So the question is this. The question is, if we're supposed to do something according to Jesus and according to Paul and according to the New Testament, if we're supposed to help others, then how? What's the manner in which we should bring others along? 
And the answer is found with Jesus himself. The answer is found in the same way that Jesus interacted with people. And the Bible says that he brought two incredible dynamics with him uh, to demonstrate this for us. Look at John chapter 1, verse number 14. It says, the word became flesh. And the word is a name referred to, uh, it's referring to Jesus. It's a name that Jesus has in the scriptures. So the word became flesh. That's Jesus being born, coming to the earth. And he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Those are the two dynamics. And then in verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's saying like the commandments of do's and don'ts. Yeah, that was written down on a tablet, the Ten Commandments. That was given through Moses, but grace and truth came. You know what came means? That means that Jesus didn't come to bring and give us grace and truth. Jesus was grace and and truth. The full embodiment of both, because it says the word was full of grace and truth. And you know what truth is? Truth is hard truth. Truth is something you don't necessarily want to hear. Truth is saying, hey, this is how God views you. And according to God's perfection, his righteousness, and your sin, here's where you stand compared to a sinless God. That is the hard truth. You know what grace says? Webster defines grace as the unmerited, undeserved favor of God, which means this, God can forgive us, but God doesn't have to give us grace. Forgiveness is one thing, but you know what grace means? Grace means that God loves you and views you as if you have never sinned at all. So grace is unbelievable. For somebody to say, I view you and love you as if you've never, ever sinned. The hard truth is we're all sinners. The grace means I love you just the same. So Jesus was full of both of those. The law was given through Moses. That's one thing. But Jesus was the full embodiment of grace and truth. You know what grace says? Grace says you're forgiven. Truth says, but you're accountable. Grace says you're fine. But truth says, but you're broken. Grace says you're going to be all right. But truth says, but you're going to have to work really hard. Grace says, I love you no matter what. But truth says, but please change now. See, the bottom line is, is that we lean one way or the other. We all love grace best, don't we? Right? Because, and by the way, if you grew up in a home, uh, a great home, you got a dose of both. But I grew up in a church that loved truth with, with, with uh, uh, little grace. But we want it to be one way or the other based on different times. Let me say it this way. I like the verses that lean toward hard truth when I'm telling other people what to do. But I like the verses that lean toward grace when it's talking about me. And you're the same way. And so here's, here's the other truth about, about judgment. That Jesus was full of truth and grace. And the church is at its best when it embraces both and refuses to let go of either. Jesus was full of truth and grace. But the church is at its best when it embraces both and refuses to let go of either. Let me explain it this way. Jesus had an interaction with the woman caught in adultery. And she was thrown down and ready to be judged with stones to be killed. And Jesus, what did he do? He said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. So they all dropped the stones and left. And he said, woman, where are your accusers? She said, there are none, Lord. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Total grace. Lifted her up, looked her in the eye. And then what did he say? Now go and leave your life of sin. 
Jesus was never afraid to speak hard truth, but unbelievable grace in every encounter that he had in the scriptures. When he, when he approached the rich young ruler, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. The scripture goes out of its way to tell us that. He loved him. And then he looked at him and said, now sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me because Jesus knew he had a problem with money. Total, not, not afraid to say the truth, total grace, the full embodiment of Uh, When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he gave her the uh, revelation that he was the Messiah, something that he had only reserved for a few people. I mean, just unbelievable grace as he honored her, you know, with with social status and gender status and and culture status. And he talked to her and she was surprised and he overcame it and he honored her in the best way possible. And then he looked at her and he said, you're right to say that you don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. Jesus was never afraid to tell truth, but he gave unbelievable grace. And what's amazing is, is that we judge our relationships, we should judge our relationships in the same manner. So we have a truth and a grace matrix. And so if you're looking at the X and Y axis, if if the Y axis would be grace, it's like low grace in the relationship, high grace, or low truth and high truth. Let's start in the lower left-hand quadrant. If you have a relationship that has low truth and low grace, somebody's gonna feel unloved. Totally unloved. You know why? Because you're not giving them any grace, no love. But at the same time, you're not challenging them with anything because I guess they're just not even important enough for you to do that. It's an unloving relationship. Now, when somebody has low truth but high grace, you know what they feel? Enabled. And that's the relationship that you say, oh, you're fine, you're forgiven, it's okay. And you give them so much grace, but you don't challenge them at all. There's no truth that you ever bring to them. They feel enabled. And that's not a healthy relationship either. Now, when you have uh, low grace and high truth, people feel judged. And that was the church that I came from. I mean, there was a lot of truth, man, telling you like it was, but not a lot of love. I grew up in the church like the Cuban woman. I got to tell you. And that's, and, that, and that's the mistake that the church has made here in our culture, in our nation, for decades. And we're still realizing how bad of a mark that we've left ourselves. But if you have a relationship with high grace and high truth as Jesus models, only then do you feel completely loved. And if you measure your relationships by this, by this mark, you realize these are the healthiest relationships. When you think about your kids, when you think about your boss, when you think about you know, your girlfriend or boyfriend or fiance, when you think about every important relationship that you have, when they have both high challenge and both love and grace, they're the healthiest relationships. But we can kind of measure ourselves and say, yeah, this relationship is good, but it's in this quadrant. It needs more of this. It needs more of this. And God is challenging us, I believe, even this afternoon to say, let us move forward as a church as a whole, as an individual in my community, certainly as a representative of Jesus Christ, only embracing truth and grace and refusing to let go of either. Um, Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Even when you think about it in terms of your own salvation, it reads this way. For it's by grace that you've been saved, total grace, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's not by your behavior. It's not by your own merit. It's not by your own worth or value. You don't deserve it. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not from works or not by good deeds so that no one may boast. You want to know the hard truth behind this? 
The hard truth is, is that no matter how good you are, you can't earn heaven. And if you were good enough to earn heaven, the Bible says you would probably end up bragging on that. So the hard truth is, you're saved by grace alone. And so the full measure of grace, even in our salvation, let me say it another way. If we decide to dumb down truth, we miss out on the full measure of grace. Say, you can say this, well, I'm not so bad of a person. You know, other people need God a lot more than I need God. You know, I'm actually a really good person. I know I need God, but I only need God this much, not, not as much as some others. Well, then what you're going to do is, I guess that means you only need this much grace that God has to offer to save your soul, right? That's not the way we should do it. In fact, the opposite is true. We should say to ourselves, let's realize the hard truth. And that is, Isaiah tells us our, even our righteousness are like filthy rags compared to a sinless God. Romans 3 tells us that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that none can get to heaven except through Jesus Christ. We can't get there by ourselves. You're in the same category as Mother Teresa and Charles Manson as an imperfect human being, no matter how good or bad you are needing God. That's the hard truth. Whoa, what do you mean? That's the boat I'm in? Yes. And you know what that means? Now you're in a position to experience the full measure of grace that God gives you of his love and forgiveness and sacrifice. You see, when Jesus died on a cross, he did so for only one reason. He died on a cross to pay for your sins and mine fully and finally. And the Bible says that he broke his body and that he he shed his blood to pay for the penalty of your wrongdoings and mine. And let me just challenge you in this area. If you're a person that's on the edge of wanting to get baptized, you know, I've run into so many people that say, you know, uh, I've been thinking about it for years and I've always wanted to do it. I'm right on the fence. Can I just lovingly give you a hard truth challenge? Okay, you just need to have enough courage and just do it. Just muster up enough courage. You know why? Because it's the least that you can do. If you feel like God is nudging you toward doing something, then do it because Jesus didn't hesitate to die for your soul on a cross. So we should not hesitate or muster around or flutter around when God says, just, just, just go public with the decision. You know, that's the hard truth. There's a loving challenge there for you. Just man up and do it. Just go online before the sun goes down and take the plunge and sign up because God tells us that we are supposed to not be ashamed. To announce it in front of our church family, there can be nothing more gentle than going in water and coming out of water. But the symbolism is that Jesus Christ went into the earth for three days and he rose up conquering death and sin. And so therefore we say to ourselves, our old self is buried. We're walking under the new life of Christ. And this is what God has for us. And so this is why we're taking our last moments and doing communion together. So we're doing communion right now. In fact, our ushers, come on down. Just go ahead and start passing these things out, guys, right now. Um, They're going to pass out the bread first and then the cup in the same song. And let me give you the instructions on how we're going to do this. Um, We're going to ask that you, we're not going to come up and take it together. We're going to let this be an individual thing for you guys. Um, I'm going to ask that when you receive the bread, just hang on to it. And then anytime during the course of this song, as we sing these lyrics, to just take it as you are ready, as you reflect. And then the same thing with the cup, that you would just take it as you are ready. And let me tell you why. Because when Jesus Christ was with his 12 disciples or 11 disciples in the upper room, when when he broke the bread, he actually broke it and said, this is symbolic, my emphasis of the body, of my body broken for you. Then when he poured the wine, he said, this is 
my blood spilled for you. And he said, as often as you eat of this bread or drink of this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to remember the sacrifice that was made for us. And listen, through today's lens, that God gives you and I full truth about our sins and full grace and pardon in our salvation. And then asks us to move forward with the same measure of truth and grace with every relationship that we have. And so as you sit here and reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus, listen to these words as we sing one name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus. And then you can take the communion when you're ready in your own time as we sing this together.